Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Welcome, everybody, to today's presentation on domestic violence and mental health. Today, we're going to be taking a slightly different look at things, and we're going to look more at batterers, but we're going to talk about the impact of domestic violence on mental health to a certain extent. Um, one of the things that, as a clinician, I'm not really, or I wasn't really familiar with, um, because I hadn't done them, were batterers intervention groups. So that always kind of bewildered me. What do they do in these groups? Um, so we're going to talk a fair amount about that today because I figured that's probably a domestic violence topic you hadn't done a lot of learning on. We're going to talk about the prevalence of intimate partner violence or domestic violence. We'll, and we'll go through an overview of mental health professional guidelines, including assessing those who, who batter and the limits of confidentiality, treatment goals, partner contacts, contacts characteristics of victims and those who batter, the impact of domestic violence on mental health, treatment issues, the impact of domestic violence on children, what can help children, and what are some buffers against domestic violence. So let's just get started with that laundry list. Generally, I do not test you on um, statistics. However, it is important, you know, I highlighted it and bolded it here, to be aware of the fact that over 50% of clients presenting with alcohol or other drug problems also experience domestic violence, which means it is really imperative that people who are working in mental health clinics and substance abuse clinics also screen for domestic violence because there's a likelihood that that person has experienced it or is perpetrating it. One in four women and one in seven men have been victims of severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. I'm really going to harp a fair amount on the fact that men can be victims of domestic violence too. Our research out there on prevalence and incidents and all that kind of stuff for men who are victims is really poor. Um, but I got any statistics that I could kind of get my hands on. Nine point. 19.3 million women and 5.0 million men in the United States have been stalked in their lifetime. 63% of males, as opposed to 15% of females, had deadly weapons used against them in a domestic violence incident. So that's an interesting little tidbit there. The hypothesis is that 
women tend to be smaller in stature, so they're more likely to use a deadly weapon to kind of even out the playing field, if you will. Um, but we don't know. In the, in the year 2000, 440 men were killed by their intimate partner. Since then, 4% of male murder victims come from domestic violence incidents. That's a pretty, four out of every hundred male murder victims, and that includes people who are murdered in commission of drug felonies and everything else. 4% of males are, are killed. That's, that's a big number. Domestic violence and mental health, 54% to 84% of battered women suffer from PTSD. Now, again, I could not find the information on the male counterpart to this, how many male uh, victims of domestic violence suffer from PTSD. So we're just talking about women here. 38% to 75% experience anxiety. 63% to 77% experience depression. An unknown number experienced substance abuse, and between 3.3 million and 10 million children witnessed domestic violence annually. That's a lot of kids. Um, again, you don't need to know all of these statistics for your test. It really will not help you in your clinical practice. I just want you to understand really the scope of the problem. So people who experience domestic violence, men, women, or children, will likely develop anxiety, depression, and or potentially PTSD. Now, one th the other way you can look at these statistics is not everybody who experiences domestic violence will develop PTSD or experience anxiety. Um, so we do want to look at the resilience of those people and figure out, you know, why is it these people manage to, you know, come out unscathed, not, well, not unscathed, but not have lasting mental health issues from it and we'll talk about that towards the end of the presentation when we talk about resiliency factors male victims of domestic violence are a little bit unique because we really haven't recognized them um, and they're definitely not the same as women men find it harder to see themselves as victims and tend not to feel that battering is associated and tend to feel that battering is associated with women and not men. So they can be battered, but they may not put that label on it because they see that as something that happens to women. So they are not um, being validated in their, in their feelings about, um, one, about what's going on. Men who are bisexual or gay may believe that they deserve the abuse because of their sexual orientation. So our culture plays a huge role in how men perceive violence that they experience and the rationale whether they think they deserve it for some reason and so we really want to do some advocacy there and help people understand that, that there's really no excuse ever for violence male victims find it hard to seek help because help is mainly gender-based according to the national coalition of domestic violence in 2003 and 2004 the state of tennessee provided shelter to 11 men but were unable to find shelters for 192 men now those are just the men that we know about that needed sheltering not the ones who you know didn't so it's really, really important that we start accepting the fact that this is not a women-only issue. Men also feel that they don't have the right to seek help because they've become part of the problem by defending themselves. And 
we really want to look at who's the aggressor, what's going on, and, and how it happened. Even in a domestic violence situation that is initiated by a male, um, women often defend themselves, yet, you know, they are victims. They were being attacked. They were defending themselves. They weren't being the primary aggressor. Uh, so we want to help men understand the difference between being the primary aggressor and, defend, and defending themselves against a deadly weapon or something else. Um, and one of you points out that sometimes when you're working with men in domestic violence ish, uh, incidents, you can pull out those special categories. A lot of times there's special funding for men who are single parents, for men who are um, HIV positive, for men who are IV drug users. You know, there are certain high-risk populations that you can often get into shelters, if those shelters even exist. Um, and, you know, there's just, in any community, in any county, there's probably not a male's domestic violence shelter. So we've got to start thinking on a community basis, what types of services can we offer? So where do we find these victims and abusers? Mandated treatment for batterers from the courts is one place where the court has already come in and said, you got a problem. And so Jim Bob strolls into your office and says, the court says I have to be here. Okay, that's the easy way. Um, Self-referral for domestic violence counseling. If people start to become aware that they've got an issue, whether they're a um, victim or a batterer, if they know that your services are out there and they feel like it's a safe place to go, they won't be judged, they won't be um, automatically turned into the cops or the Department of Children and Families, um, and those are the big issues that come up, then they may seek out your services. But a lot of times, domestic violence issues come up in the context of therapy for other concerns, where we're talking to somebody about alcohol or drug abuse, marital conflict, depression, you know, the whole range of things, and it comes up that there is violence in their household or there is violence with their intimate partner. And then we need to step in. Over 50% of clients presenting for alcohol and other drug problems also experience domestic violence. And over 50% of those presenting for help with domestic violence also struggle with substance abuse. So, you know, you've got a yin and a yang. And they speculate, and it kind of makes sense, that some people misuse substances when they're in domestically violent relationships to numb the pain, to get through the trauma. They also speculate, and again, makes sense, that some substances, such as alcohol, are disinhibitors, so they can be more prevalently involved in domestic violence, domestically violent incidents, because Jim Bob may be a pretty nice guy until he drinks, and then once he drinks, that disinhibition kicks in, and he makes poor choices. Now, I'm not blaming the alcohol. You know, Jim Bob knows that he's an angry drunk, so he knows he should not drink because it will have negative consequences. Um, so we need to make sure that Jim Bob takes responsibility for what he's doing. But we do want to recognize that substance abuse is often a solution to a problem. It's a poor solution but it's a solution. But substance abuse can also be a cause of a problem. Um, you know, thinking about 
families that I've worked with where there has been substance abuse, there are financial problems. There are marital problems. There are all kinds of things that go on because of the substance abuse. At a certain point, those can escalate to the level of domestic violence. It doesn't always happen, but it can. So it can be a cause or a result. Important note, statistically, women are more likely to be killed by their partners when their partners threaten suicide than when their partners threaten homicide. So if a client is in there, in, in your office, and says, I am going to kill myself, I just, I can't go through this, and this is the batterer, and the batterer says, I'm going to kill myself, it's much more likely that it's going to be a um, uh, homicide-suicide sort of thing that happens than if the batterer's in your office and just says outright, I am going to kill my partner. Um, so the, co the caveat we have here is that confidentiality laws don't provide for the warning of battered women who choose, whose partners contemplate suicide. So if we know that when the batterer is contemplating suicide, that the victim is at a higher risk for homicide, then it's important to potentially consider modifying your program um, releases of information and confidentiality notices, specifying an exception to confidentiality in the program contract for all threats of harm to self and others. And you'd want to get with your attorney on that, but that was one, one of the recommendations in the guidelines that we used to create this course. Concurrent addiction and domestic violence treatment. Some domestic violence programs require chemically dependent batterers to participate in drug treatment programs concurrently. Well, why? Well, number one, you've got the person there, so it's more cost-effective to do it concurrently. Many of the treatment issues are the same. The de denial, minimization, projection of blame, you know, all of those things come up with batterers as well as people who are recovering from substance abuse. Batterers often blame their use of violence on psychoactive substances. Okay, well, if you are violent when you use, then let's make sure that you're not using. Let's help you get clean and sober. Then you don't have an excuse. Batterers often blame their partners for forcing them into treatment. So we want to make sure that the person is in some kind of treatment where the, the victim is safe. Violence may become more frequent once the batterer is sober. And you think, you know, why is this? Well, let's think about the function of some substances. A lot of times people drink. Why? When they're stressed, when they're angry, they drink to calm down. They drink after a bad day at work. They don't have this anymore. They don't have the substance to help them de-escalate or numb, I guess is a better word. So they're sitting there and they are just getting wound tighter and tighter and tighter and they don't have appropriate coping skills handy to deal with that. So they are, you know, more reactive. They're more raw to everything that happens, which can make it more likely for them to react aggressively. Integrated treatment allows for an examination of the relationship between the substance use and the violence to increase awareness. On, and we want to make sure this is family education, not just the batterer, but we want to make sure that the, you know, anybody that is in that person's family understands.
Victims remain at higher risk of being abused while their partners go without domestic violence treatment. So we don't want to just send him, if he says, the only time I use is, uh, abuse somebody is when I'm using. You don't want to just say, okay, well then go to drug treatment. So if you remove the drugs, then you remove the battering. That's, that's not, <laughs> removing the drugs likely increases the chances of battering. And if the partner is in domestic violence or has domestic violence issues, um, the longer they go without domestic violence treatment, you know, those behaviors are not being addressed. So the victim remains at risk. Additionally, the thought is that postponing domestic violence treatment may imply that stopping violence is not as important as some other issues such as stopping substance abuse. And we also want to look at the fact that substances mess with the neurochemicals, mess with impulse control, mess with a lot of other things. So we want to make sure that the person has the physiological resources to effectively complete a batterer's intervention program. So we want to work with them throughout the process. Some people say, you know, well, if you've got couples and... Um, one of, the, one of you pointed out that um, uh, in, in some clinics, the prevailing notion is that individuals who batter are beyond receiving help. Um, and other notions are, you know, that both people are responsible and they both need treatment. And so couples counseling is appropriate and they can both recover and live happily ever after. And the answer is neither one of those is right. Um, it really depends on the person. But what about couples counseling? If the people want to stay together, should we put them in couples counseling? Well, we should question the appropriateness and safety of couples counseling if there's been physical violence within the last several months. I usually use the term six months when I'm thinking about, you know, likelihood of some sort of a behavior. If either partner is afraid of the other one, you don't want them in couples counseling right now. Maybe down the line, but not now. If either partner is afraid of reprisal for expressing feelings, needs, and concerns, if either partner does not believe that the other can express feelings other than anger or jealousy. So we're not talking about just the victim being afraid. We're talking about the batterer going, well, all she's going to do is be angry with me the whole time. Okay, then we're, we're going to be at an impasse from the very beginning because he's going to see everything as hostility. If either partner doesn't... Experience a sense of self-control over the choice to be violent or abusive. So both partners need to recognize that they have the ability to not be violent. And if either partner feels or seems unable to free, freely choose how to think or behave due to the other partner's efforts to control, manipulate, or coerce, couples counseling, not, probably not appropriate, at least at that point in time. So common characteristics of batterers, and you notice I didn't put men because batterers can be women. Um, sense of entitlement. This person feels like when they come home, dinner should be on the table. When they need something to wear, their laundry should be done. When they want to do something, people should say, yes, let's go do it. And nobody should have any other opinions. There's a strong sense of entitlement. This person may feel like a victim if people don't do what they want. They may feel like a victim if they aren't doing well at work or if they're not succeeding. They may, may feel like the world is against them and take it out on their partner. 
They may have witnessed abuse as a child or been abused as a child. So this is a behavioral set that they've learned. You know, they've learned that it's okay to hit or it's okay that this happens. They may have difficulty controlling or experiencing anger. Now, a lot of times in dialectical behavior therapy, we talk about emotional dysregulation. And a lot of times in that, we're thinking depression. We're thinking suicidal ideation. We're thinking those sorts of behaviors. But you can see this behavioral disinhibition and emotional dysregulation with people's difficulty in controlling their anger. They go from, I'm fine, to enraged in no time flat. These people may have more difficulty controlling their behavioral urges because remember, we have a feeling, we have an emotion, and then we also have physiological sensations and behavioral urges that go with that. So, we want to look at when you have this feeling of anger, what are your physiological sensations and what are your behavioral urges and help people start developing an understanding of how those are related. Batterers are often possessive and suspicious. Well, whether they're entitled or they are afraid of abandonment and feel like a victim, they want to keep that person right there. So they may be very possessive and suspicious because they're afraid to lose that person. They may have drug and alcohol concerns. They often deny, minimize, or project responsibility for things that happen. They can deny that they even did it. You know, they want to try to find some other explanation. A lot of times they'll minimize what they did. You know, it didn't leave a mark, so I couldn't have been that bad. Or they'll project responsibility. I wouldn't have had to do this unless if you would have, you know, followed the rules or if you would have had dinner ready or whatever. You make me hit you. So these are all things that you may hear from a batterer. Batterers often have intimacy problems. I mean, think about it. What's aggression? What's anger? Anger is a response to a threat, a fight-or-flight response. If somebody is that scared all the time, then, or a lot of the time, think about how difficult it must be to be intimate, to be truly vulnerable. And they often have assertiveness problems. Common characteristics of batterers continued. So low self-concept. Very few batterers think that they're all that in a bag of chips. Now, they may have a sense of entitlement. But they may also have a low self-concept at the same time. They want it. They feel like they deserve it. But they may not feel good about themselves. They often have few social supports because this behavior often permeates outside. And when people have social supports, those social supports serve as a buffer against stress. So if they don't have social supports, then they're taking on all of these burdens that are stressing them out. They don't have the tools to cope with them. And then they end up kind of exploding like Vesuvius. Think about the domestic violence wheel. You have that honeymoon period and then tension building. When During tension building, the person is not coping with the done-me-wrongs that they experience. They're just stuffing them down, stuffing them down. And then you get to that explosion period, and that's when everything comes up. Um, so if they had good coping skills, if they had social supports that they could, you know, vent to and rely on, then they might not be in this situation. So these are things that we want to think about as a, when we're working with batterers. We want to help them improve their self-concept, improve their social supports, um, address their sense of entitlement and their feeling like a victim. We want them to help 
We want to help them feel like a survivor. We want them to realize what they're entitled to and what they can control and develop tools to deal with their sort of explosive anger. They may see themselves and their partner as one. And this is can be true er in highly some highly religious families, um, especially very orthodox families, uh, wh where they take the Bible very seriously, where it says the man is to dominate his wife and yada, yada. Um, now, not to say that all religious families are that way, or even the majority of them, but some people can use, they'll find something to justify their behavior. And there are a couple passages um, in, in the Bible that can potentially justify that behavior. So we want to make sure that they put that into context. We're not talking about just one little excerpt that you pluck out. Uh, they may have military or police background. These guys tend to be, or people, tend to be in positions where they are commanding. A lot of the time and that they do that to stay safe when they are at work and they have a hard time turning that off when they come home a lot of times people who are in that field often have very stereotypical male gender roles whether they're male or female in physiology the gender role behaviors that are um, used in that or that are throughout military and law enforcement careers tend to be often very uh, male-oriented. So we want to make sure to be cognizant of that because, you know, women who are in law enforcement may have uh, some, espoused some very traditionally male gender roles, and we need to respect that, whether they're a victim or a batterer. And I've worked with law enforcement couples where both of them are cops, and one's a batterer and one's a victim. So you know you're not immune no matter where you are and they may perceive violence as a means of control well if that's what they've learned then that's going to continue as long as they feel like they need to control so we want to help them develop alternative ways of solving problems they're not always going to be able to control everything alternative ways of getting their needs met assertiveness skills problem solving skills all of those things are really helpful tools for batterers. So what do we do in batterers treatment? You know, I said it was kind of a mystery uh, to me for a long time. Well, the first thing, obviously, we want to cease physical and other forms of abuse. Physical, emotional, sexual, financial, social, if you want to go there. Because a lot of times in domestically violent relationships, the victim is isolated from friends and family. We want to have the person learn to about oppression understanding power and control issues and what they have the right to control they have the right to control themselves they have the right to control their feelings they cannot control somebody else uh, and we need to talk about what that oppression looks like they learn about effective male and female socialization and issues of entitlement now I don't like the term male female socialization I would say just learn about effective socialization with other human beings and issues of entitlement that they may espouse. Uh, developing emotional awareness, developing victim empathy, understanding the impact of violence on child witnesses. A lot of times people don't get it. They don't recognize that even if the kid can't see what's going on, they can just hear things crashing in the other room and people screaming. That is really terrifying 
to a kid who relies on the parental units for their livelihood, for their health and safety. Um, so we want to help children or help adults understand the impact on children. We want to help batterers develop mutual respect and trust for other people. The first thing they've got to do is develop respect and trust for themselves because they don't most of the time. They have to learn that they're okay, that they are worthy human beings. We have to help them develop honesty and accountability for their behaviors and their feelings. That means helping them develop mindfulness so they can get honest with themselves about how they're feeling and why they're feeling that way. You know, sometimes they could have a bad day at work and they come home and they start venting on their significant other. Well, honesty and account accountability would say you need to check it at the door and say, I've had a really bad day. Let me tell you about what's going on instead of taking it out on the nearest safe target. And helping them develop control plans, such as timeouts to ensure safety. If they've had a bad day, if something ticks them off, what do they do to ensure their safety as well as the safety of the others in their households? Do they go on a walk? Do they go down to the um, basement and punch on a punching bag for a while? Do they, what do they do? And, and, and this takes it to the next step, if you've got other people in the household, what does that person need those other people to do? And generally the response is, uh, not follow me. Because you don't want somebody following them going, no, you're not going down there to hit on that bunch punching bag right now. We're going to finish this. It's just going to escalate. So we need to um, have that person, be the, the batterer, be able to communicate effectively what their needs are in terms of where they need to go, what they need to do, and what they need those around them to do when they're feeling triggered. We want to help them identify cues for violence. What triggers it in you? And, you know, there are a lot of things. You use a psychodynamic perspective, look back over their childhood and figure out, you know, what sorts of things trigger anger. But also have them just keep a log of what triggers anger and irritation in them so they can start looking at themes. We're not going to find every single trigger. We want them to figure out, you know, generally what triggers them and what are some steps they can take when they start feeling triggered? So when you're triggered, how does it feel Physio physiologically? How does it feel emotionally? That's your warning sign that, all right, you know, something's getting ready to go wonky. I need to do something. We help them learn techniques for responsible parenting because intimate partner violence and domestic violence often doesn't just stop with the adult partner. If the batterer has a bad temper and tends to react with violence, then they may react with violence towards the children, towards the pets, towards anybody in the family. Have them develop so social supports. Some programs have them take social action to promote a nonviolent, non-oppressive community. They need to learn how to communicate their needs non-abusively. So this goes back to that mindfulness. They need to know what their needs are first. They need to start understanding what these feelings are. A lot of times people don't have the emotional vocabulary to articulate what's going on or to recognize that, yes, this reminds me of a time back then that I'm still angry about and I'm taking everything out right now. 
And they need to take responsibility for managing their, their own stress. They need to look, and again, back to that old DBT, they need to participate in vulnerability prevention. They need enough sleep. They need a good nutritious diet. They need, ideally, some exercise. And they need to have good time management and problem-solving skills. They need to recognize the conditions that can set them up to be on edge. Batter a group treatment. Advantages um, over individual or couple treatment include the opportunity for group members to challenge each other's attitudes and beliefs while mutually supporting efforts to change. Group members tend to feel less isolated and hopeless and have the opportunity to develop friendships based on equality rather than power and control. The group discussions in group treatment are often aimed at ending all forms of abuse towards partners. So when your partner does this, how can you act? When you feel triggered this way, what are some alternate responses? Increasing awareness of how the person behaves toward others. And you'll see it in group, some. But since often batterers intervention groups are just men um, or just women, you're not going to necessarily see it as much if the relationships are heterosexual. Now, you can, if you've got um, people that are involved in homosexual relationships, then you may see some males projecting on males. But a lot of times, the, the aggression, the battering, is directed at a representation of the partner. So if their partner is female, then they're going to be more likely to be aggressive towards females, for example. But we, it does help us understand senses of entitlement. And in group, if Jim Bob always has to be the one that's right and always has to get the last word in and always has to blah, 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 well, we can point that out to Jim Bob. We can point out the fact that he, he's very controlling even in group. Discussions also work at stopping denial that is a serious life-threatening problem. You've got to den uh, stop denying the fact that this is out of control. Stop blaming the partner for one's abusive behavior. Did the person potentially do something that pushed your buttons? Maybe. But does that mean that it's okay to be a violent, emotionally, physically, sexually violent towards that person? No. What are some other responses? What are in your repertoire that you can do? Have uh, batterers make a list of these responses because when they're feeling triggered they're not going to be thinking about all their responses their their brain is kind of mush at that point through the adrenaline um, so it's important that they have something that they can look at and go okay i need to even if it's i need to get out and take a walk for a minute to clear my head they redefine abuse and recognize the real damage that it does to themselves and to other people because batterers generally don't feel very good about their battering um, and then afterwards, in order to kind of save face, is when they turn to denial, blaming, yada, yada. And encouraging them to become more flexible and tolerant towards sexual expectations for both men and women. We want to help them break out of isolation from family, friends, society, and their own nonviolent nurturing self. So, again, they need to develop a relationship with themselves. They need to start liking themselves. If we look at battering as an act of aggression, which is a result of anger or fear, you know, fight or flight, then we have to say, what's this person afraid of? 
what's the threat this person is trying to get away from? Um, and, and we need, so oftentimes when we look at that, we find that they feel threatened because they don't feel like anybody's going to love them. They don't feel lovable. They don't feel like they're okay. So we want to help them figure out who they are. And what's good about them? And where's this nurturing part of themselves? Maybe when they were growing up, that nurturing part was squashed. They were like, don't act like that. Or, you know, that's not how boys act or that's not how girls should act. Well, we want to help them get in touch with who they are and how they feel they want to nurture themselves because the way they want to be nurtured is often the way they need to nurture other people. So it starts in their own heart, head, heart, and gut. We help them recognize and better manage stress. And this happens really well in group, where group members can point out, you know, John, you're looking a little bit stressed today, or you've seemed irritable the past three sessions. You want to tell the group about what's going on. John may not realize it. You know, I don't, don't know about some of you, but I know there are times where I don't even really realize that I am just telegraphing stress until I go home and, you know, I sit down and start messing on my phone or something and my dog comes up and just gets in my lap and he refuses to let me look at my phone and i'm like oh i must be oozing stress because that's the only time he does that i'm like okay mommy will put the phone down uh, but a lot of times we are people not just batterers are not as self-aware as we could be and we don't recognize when we're under a low or moderate level of stress we want to help the batterer Stop blaming stress for the violence. Stress happens. The president has stress. The generals have stress. The CEOs have stress. But they don't react violently. They may do something else. What do they do? So stress is not an excuse. Neither are substances. In group, they can support others who've been abusive and their efforts to change. So we want to, you know, bring everybody on. You know, John, who's been coming to the group for eight weeks, can support Tom, who's there for the first time and who kind of doesn't see the point and help him feel welcome and help him recognize some of the behaviors in himself. Have them face up to any conflict in relationships by learning to become nonviolent, nurturing, and assertive. Kind of talked about that one a bunch. And any... And any threat of retaliation toward his or her partner because of efforts to be protected from violence. So if the partner has left and gone to a shelter, if the partner has taken the children and gone to a shelter, we want to help the batterer understand why that might have happened and end any continued resentment and anger held about that. So the, partner, the batterer can say, okay, you know what, that makes sense. I get it. And then they can start working from there. Contacting the victim during treatment is somewhat controversial. Some programs make periodic contact with the client's partners um, in order to gather information about the extent and nature of violence or other forms of abuse. A lot of times, batterer's intervention is like once a week outpatient. So, you know, they may be reaching out going, so is it getting any better? Um, they may encourage the client to disclose information about abusive behavior. They may hold the client accountable for any abuse that the partner reports. Um, and they may call the partner to disseminate information about goals and limitations of the program, information about victim services, 
and information about people who matter to help educate the partner about what's going on. So you can see where, yeah, you know, I can see some utility to that, but that also puts that victim in a potentially very, very dangerous situation. Um, whether they're still living with that or residing with that partner or not, um, it could escalate the situation where the, the batterer becomes completely enraged. So the other end of the spectrum, other programs uh, do not make contacts with the victim, believing that the risks outweigh the benefits. Partner contacts imply that the victim is responsible to track or change the batterer, and this isn't their job. The batterer's job is to become self-aware and change themselves. The victim may be punished for disclosing. The clinician may not be able to hide knowledge from a suspicious batterer, even if the victim says, well, don't tell him I told you this. Batterers can often read it on our faces. So, you know, sometimes ignorance is better. The partner contact sends a message of distrust, which may erode the working alliance with the batterer. If I'm calling and checking up on you and going, okay, Sally, so how does it go going this week? Tom said it was fine. Is he lying to me? You know, that really creates a very distrustful situation. The report from the victim may not even be accurate because they're afraid of rep reprisal from the batterer. So, you know, even if we call and Sally says, oh, no, things have been going fine, we don't know that that's the truth. And the counselor may not need information from the victim to educate the batterer about how to be non-abusive. You know, it's sort of irrelevant at this point. So characteristics of victims. Let's just go through these really quickly so you can identify it when you see it. Unexplained injuries. If they're frequently sick, sick from work, sick at home, generally that's when they've got bruises or wounds that can't be hidden or if they were up all night um, fighting or being abused. Fears intermittent partner if they feel they don't deserve any better. If they blame themselves for the abuse, if we hear them talking about, well, yeah, he pushed me, but, you know, I was the one who started it or, or whatever. Um, accepts responsibility for his or her partner's actions. If the client is saying, you know what, she didn't mean to get that angry. I was texting with somebody when I should have been paying attention to her and, you know, she was just trying to get my attention. Um, if the partner accepts responsibility for maintaining the relationship in spite of the batterer's actions. So if the partner says, I just need to do better. Mm. If the victim, the victim often spends much energy trying not to anger the abuser, trying to make sure that they get home on time, trying to make sure that they don't miss somebody's call. And the person may be secretive about problems in the relationship. So if you're doing counseling with somebody and they're talking about their relationship and they have some other, you know, indications, depression, anxiety, other things going on, and they're always telling you that they, their relationship is, you know, sunshine, roses, and bunny rabbits, it's worth just you know, probing a little bit to see, because all relationships have occasional disagreements or problems. Um, and if the person says, no, we've never had a problem, could it be true? Yeah. Could it be that they're hiding a much bigger problem? Yes. 
Victims are often isolated from family and friends and continually hope that things are going to get better. You know, they go through that honeymoon phase and it's like, okay, this is back to the way it's supposed to be. If, if, quote, I can just keep from angering this person again, then we'll be doing fine. Um, They feel guilty, depressed, angry, and worthless due to the batterer's actions, have to constantly account for every action to the jealous partner, and children generally are on two poles. They are either very clingy and needy and emotional or very, very disrespectful toward the victim. So what do we do about treating victims? Safety and empowerment are the two most widely cited goals of treatment for victims of domestic violence. So how do we do that? Well, that's a whole different class. The short answer is consult with your local domestic violence council to learn techniques and programs they have to help safely empower people who are in domestically violent relationships. It is important not to overpathologize the battered partners. What appears to be maladaptive functioning in a nonviolent relationship, you know, things we might call codependent traits, could be a survival strategy for the battered partner. If they're making excuses for their partner, if they are taking responsibility for things that aren't their responsibility. In this relationship, that could be the only way to safely behave and they don't know how to get out of the relationship. If you have that person referred over to codependency counseling, it may blame the client for being battered in the first place since the relationship is perceived as co-created. So we want to watch our terminology, and that's really what it boils down to is semantics and not blaming the victim, recognizing that, yes, the victim may have defended himself or herself, but it's important to recognize um, that both people have the uh, right to not be abused. Both people have the right to defend themselves, but neither has the right to be aggressive, Be clear that it takes two to be in a relationship, but it takes only one to be violent. And the violent person is responsible for that violence. Some victims are abandoned by their church when separating from the abuser, since some religious doctrines prohibit separation or divorce, regardless of the severity of abuse. And this is somewhat culturally dependent, but it is extremely important to know. And uh, Nancy points out that one of the most dangerous times for a victim or survivor is when they leave the abusive relationship, when they leave the situation, when they actually agree to press charges, um, then it can become very, very dangerous for that person. They can be stalked. They can be attacked. They could, a lot of things can happen because that person, the batterer, all of a sudden doesn't have control. You know, all of a sudden, they're going to start reacting very strongly to try to get control back. And the only way they may know how to do that is through threats, in, intimidation, and violence. And during this period, um, violence towards children and threats towards children or pets also escalates. So in domestic violence situations, when sheltering, if the shelter also accommodates pets, that's usually really helpful. Um, children are often quite devastated, um, and, and survivors as well, but uh, children can be especially devastated if their beloved pet becomes ancillary fallout. Losses associated with domestic violence. Why do we talk about losses? Because every loss needs to be grieved by the victim and the batterer. 
sense of safety. Well, this makes sense. Um, you know, both the victim and the batterer lose a sense of safety. The batterer may not feel like they've got control over their own emotions and reactions during some times. They also may feel like they're not lovable. They may feel like they're not guaranteed this relationship. So their sense of safety. And obviously the victim's sense of safety um, is eroded when somebody that they truly loved and thought truly loved them suddenly becomes violent. The ability to trust themselves or others. Their relationship with the abuser. I mean, when you get into one of these relationships, you generally it's a good relationship to begin with. So things get violent, and then the person's like, but, you know, six months ago when we got together, it was nothing like this. The relationship we had back then, that's the one I want back. And that's the one that often comes back during that honeymoon period. They lose relationships with other people because the abuser may isolate them, because they may withdraw from their family and friends who they don't feel understands. And the batterer may also withdraw from family and friends who they don't feel understands. They may hope for what love will be, you know, and, and we all have this image of what love is supposed to be like. And in this relationship that was started out so loving, it turned into something that was very not loving. And people may lose hope for that fairy tale love to even exist. They may start thinking it doesn't exist. So we want to help them work through that. They may have lost time. They may have been in this relationship for 10 years and they look back and they're like, those were the best years of my life and they're gone and I wasted them on this person. So they need to grieve that. Finances can be lost. You know, it's not uncommon to have bank accounts completely drained. Self-esteem can be lost from what the abuser said or for feelings that they have against themselves for not leaving or not protecting the children. And physical abilities and appearance can be lost. Sometimes they are, you know, shot, beaten, something that happens that mars their physical appearance, or they get enough concussions that they have a stroke and then they become paralyzed. I mean, there's a lot of things that can happen physically that the person may have to grieve. And some people just have chronic ongoing pain after repeated beatings. So the question comes up, how do I know when he's changed? Well, you don't. There are some clues that may indicate that things are on the right track if the violence has stopped, if you're not afraid when you're with the person, if the person's able to be angry without becoming verbally or physically abusive towards you. Good good indication. Are you able to express anger without being attacked? So the victim needs to be able to express displeasure and anger, which is a very normal emotion, without being physically or emotionally attacked. Are you able to make decisions about your life without fear of retaliation? Is the batterer able to hear and respect what you're saying, even if he or she doesn't agree? Can the batterer negotiate with you without being attacking or controlling? So those are those interpersonal skills, creating the win-win, embracing the dialectics, yada, yada. Can the batterer respect your right to say no? Is he or she able to let you know what he or she is feeling most of the time? So that comes with that awareness and honesty and in order to prevent um, dysregulation. Is the batterer able to express feelings other than anger? 
Does the batterer blame you for his or her anger, frustrations, and violence? If so, then that's not a good thing. And does the batterer respect your right to be different and to make your own decisions? If you answer affirmatively to all of those questions except for that one, does that mean the person's changed and you're safe? Not necessarily. But it does indicate that there may be some progress. Can batterers change was a question that was asked at the beginning of class. I truly believe they can. Battering, aggressiveness, violence, it's a learned response to a emotional and physiological reaction. It's a learned behavioral response. Can it be changed? Yes. Is it easy? No. Does the person have to be super-duper motivated? Yes. And they need to stay vigilant henceforth and forevermore. It's not like you go through a program for 12 weeks and then you never have an issue with it again. You have to continue to practice the recovery behaviors of self-awareness, self-care, stress management, assertive communication, yada, yada. Impact of domestic violence on children. Witnessing can mean seeing, seeing or hearing the violence. Observing the aftermath of physical abuse such as blood, bruises, tears, torn clothing, or broken items. Awareness of the tension in the home, such as their parents' fearfulness when the abuser's car pulls into the driveway. So these are all ways children are exposed. Children who are exposed to battering become fearful and anxious because they don't know when it's going to happen again. They can't control it. They can't protect that parent. They don't trust the other parent. And they can't fend for themselves. They never know what will trigger the abuse and never feel safe. They're always worried for themselves, their parent, their pets, and their siblings, and may feel worthless and powerless. You know, sometimes children feel like they should be able to protect their parent. Emotional reactions of fear, guilt, shame, sadness, depression, and anger can occur at both the abuser for the violence and at the victim for being unable to prevent the violence. You got to think, cognitively, children think very differently. Cognitive, developmentally, they are at different stages than, you know, somebody who's a teenager or, you know, a, an adult. Children often have sleep disturbances, stomach aches, headaches, bedwetting, loss of the ability to concentrate, acting out, withdrawal, or anxiousness to please. These can be signs of a whole bunch of things. But especially if you see it a lot in one child or if you see it suddenly in one child, then you want to pay attention to it. They may also have a short attention span, partly because they're probably not getting good sleep. There are developmental delays in speech, motor, or cognitive skills, as you learned the other day. In order for all of these developmental things to happen, children need adequate nutrition and sleep. And if they're stressed out all the time and having sleep difficulties, it ain't going to happen. They may use violence to express themselves, displaying increased aggression with their peers or their mother. Or they may self-injure. Seeing the victim treated with enormous disrespect may teach children that they can disrespect their partner the way the abuser does. So that's social learning that happens. Witnessing domestic violence is the single best predictor of juvenile delinquency and adult criminality. I thought that was an interesting little tidbit there. And children who witness abuse also have an increased risk of being abused because they think it's normal. It is their normal. They don't know that that doesn't happen in every family. 
Children who have tantrums because they're overwhelmed by their feelings, don't know any other way to let go, may have been exposed to domestic violence. They see their parent tension building and then exploding. And they're like, okay, well, that's what you do then. Tension build and explode. Children and teenagers may be aggressive as they struggle to feel in control of things instead of helpless. They felt helpless to protect their parent. And now as they're getting older, you know, they want to step in. They, they're bigger. They want to, you know, defeat the bully. When they live with domestic violence, they may try to resist your authority as a parent and test the limits of your rules in order to feel independent and strong. If they don't feel like they can trust either parent, if they're angry at both parents, they may want to distance and separate and go, you know what, I don't need you. And this can come out as disrespect, oppositional behavior, resistance to authority. So what are the buffers? Let's hit, hit these really quick towards the end. Mental health. Yes, you can have mental health and domestic violence concurrently. Domestic violence can be ongoing or it can be one or two distinct episodes and the person gets out. If they feel um, empowered, if they feel confident, if they have good self-esteem, then they are more likely to take the appropriate steps for self-protection. If they have good social support, then they're likely to be in a better place. If children have good mental health, if they're not depressed, anxious, bipolar, any of that stuff, then they're able to handle the stress of domestic violence better than children who have those problems. Children who receive social support obviously feel nurtured and cared for, so they don't feel quite as anxious. If the parent has positive parenting skills and can help the child understand this is not your, not your circus, not your monkeys, and help the child feel empowered, that's helpful. Children who have the ability to regulate their own emotions, they can identify them, they can put words to them, and they have tools to deal with them, can help. In a domestically violent relationship, one parent may have good coping skills and good mental health and good parenting skills, and that parent can serve as a very good buffer. If they have um, treatment for trauma symptoms, that will help. Um, you know, sometimes you have to get out of the situation and then get the kid to treatment, and that will buffer against any long-term effects. They need to have adults who will listen and believe them, and they need to return to a sense of routine and normalcy. If you have to move, if you have to go to a shelter, if you have to do something, how can you get back into some sort of a routine? Helpful messages for kids. Violence is not okay. It's not your fault. I will do everything I can to help keep you safe. It's not your job to fix what is wrong in the family. That's the parents' jobs. I want you to tell me how you feel, because a lot of times they're told that their feelings don't matter. And what you have to say is important. And you know what? No matter how bad it is, I can handle it. And it's okay to have mixed feelings about either or both of us, your parents. So helping them understand that you can take it if they're angry at you and you're not going to react with anger or abandonment. What parents can do, set clear and regular routines at home. They make life more predictable for younger children. Think carefully about which behaviors you might safely ignore and which are unacceptable. 
the ones you ignore will decrease over the time. So if you're going to make them stick to certain routines, you know, pick the ones that are most important. Praise your child for the positive things he or she does. Try not to reason with them when you're in the middle of a struggle with them. Just both of you need to take a break. You need to model the effective problem-solving and coping skills for the child and teach the child how to deal with their own feelings. Offer the child choices. Say that she may do what you ask. Um, talk about why she's upset or go to your room and calm down. Those are your three choices. We, you can do it. We can talk about it. Or you can go to your room. Explain that it's your job to set limits and make decisions. Sometimes children will see conflict between parents as a time to try to exploit a weakness and take advantage of the situation. Um, so it's important to set limits and maintain those limits. Maintain the consequences of behavior and be clear and always follow through. Children need to know that no matter what's going on over here, you know, their life is consistent. You will be there. You will protect them. If you see your children mimicking abuse during play, use the moment to talk about his or her feelings and worries. For example, say, you know, it seems like you're thinking about what happened between mommy and daddy. Do you, do you want to talk about that for a second? And you can see where it goes. Domestic violence impacts one in three women and one in four men. Group treatment for batterers is the best approach. Batterers may have low self-esteem, abandonment anxiety, and issues with emotional dysregulation. And it's important to remember that batterers are not always abusive. So you have that honeymoon period that, you know, things can seem great. And so you don't want to dismiss it and go, well, it was just an isolated incident. Well, that isolated incident that happens periodically and starts happening more frequently generally is domestic violence. Domestic violence can lead to anxiety, PTSD, depression, substance abuse, and self-injurious behaviors in both victims and their children. It's essential that mental health and substance abuse workers routinely screen for domestic violence because the high rate of co-occurrence between domestic violence and mental health and addiction issues. Some of the best buffers against the impact of domestic violence for the victim as well as the children include social support, development of a healthy self-esteem, mental health, care, effective parenting skills, and effective coping skills. So we can educate people. We can provide psychoeducation to help people have these ideally in their arsenal before anything bad ever happens. And then if something bad happens, they've already got a whole toolbox. But if you can't do it that way, then when you are able to connect with the victim, making sure to provide these as quickly as possible in order to help them have the best chance at, you know, not having any lasting effects from the violence. Are there any questions? I personally have not had experience doing groups for kids who've witnessed domestic violence. Has anybody else? I don't generally work with, with children under the age of 14 anyway. But. And as a side note, as I'm just kind of thinking while I'm, you know, waiting to see if you guys have questions, animal therapy may be triggering for some clients who are survivors of domestic violence if their beloved pet got injured or killed in a domestically violent incident then being exposed to that may be triggering they may not want to get close to another animal so it could be an exposure therapeutic tool or it could be something you want to avoid but you know something as benign as a therapy dog 
could actually have significant emotional repercussions. All righty. Thank you, everybody, for being here today, and I will see you uh, Thursday. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe, either in your podcast player or on YouTube. If you want to attend and participate in our live webinars with Dr. Snipes, you can subscribe at https allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. This episode has been brought to you in part by allceus.com, providing 24-7 multimedia continuing education and pre-certification training to counselors, therapists, and nurses since 2006. You can use coupon code COUNSELORTOOLBOX to get 20% off of your current order. If you're a podcast listener, especially on an Apple device, it would be extremely helpful if you would review Counselor Toolbox. To do this on your Apple device, go to the podcast app, search for Counselor Toolbox, select the icon for the podcast, tap the Reviews tab in the middle. You should then see an option to click Write a Review. We love to see five-star reviews, so if there's anything we can do to make this podcast even better for you, please email us at support at allceus.com.